Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity. I looked into the history of the biblical canon, the history of the early church, the the church fathers, why some churches worshipped one way and other churches worshipped a different way. It was then that I encountered the Catholic Church. It looms large in Christian history, and there it was. Unmistakable. And it was then, as I began to read from Catholic theologians and historians about what the actual Catholic Church actually believed, well, it was then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about Catholicism, was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week's episode is an absolute doozy. It is my pleasure and privilege to bring you this interview with Mark Galley, Catholic convert and former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, the evangelical flagship newspaper and magazine. It's a fantastic interview. We dive deeply into Mark's faith journey, his trajectory as an evangelical into Anglicanism and into the Catholic Church ultimately. It's a great story, a story of conversion, a story ultimately of humility, of surrender, and of the importance of church unity. It's fantastic. I think you'll love it. I think you'll really enjoy what he has to say and hearing about his journey. This episode is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thanks, guys, for your financial support. It helps to keep this thing going. If you want to join that community, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And thank you. Thank you for your support and for your prayers. And thank you for listening. Without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview. It's a good one, guys. With Mark Galley. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. You're in for an absolute treat this week. I'm joined by Mark Galley. Mark is a convert to the Catholic faith and over a 20-year period served as managing editor and then editor-in-chief of the evangelical flagship Christianity Today. Mark has a bachelor's degree in history, a master of divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, and before working in journalism, served as a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years. Mark has written a number of books and now produces a weekly newsletter called The Galley Report. Mark, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show and hello. Hello. 
Good to be with you. I love the title of this podcast. <laughs> Catholic. Yeah. I joke that it's more of an aspirational title. If you ask, there you my, go. <laughs> you ask my wife. <laughs> but the I, period when there's so much divisiveness in our country, it's <laughs> nice that there's somebody that wants to be cordial. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear, Mark. I'm so pleased to have you here. This is going to be an absolute uh, thrill. I think a really fun discussion, a really fun conversation, and I want you to take us back, if we can, uh, to the very beginning of your faith journey. Where did it begin for you? Where did that start in in your life? Yeah. Well, theologically, of course, it began with my baptism at uh, in a Catholic church in San Francisco. But to be honest, that was not a meaningful event, obviously, because I was an infant. And then I did take First Communion as a young man. But I think both of those were in, instigated by my grandmother on my father's side, uh, because I never recall going to church at all. I don't even remember the First Communion service. Uh, so we just didn't we just didn't do that. I do remember going to first confession. Uh, that was kind of a memorable experience, but I don't remember being in church. Maybe I remember being in line. So religion was just not important in my young, in my boyhood at all. It wasn't until my mother was converted when I was around 13. She had a uh, classic evangelical conversion experience watching Billy Graham on TV. And when he asked viewers to, if they wanted to accept Christ to kneel before the television set and receive Christ, you know, uh, repeat this prayer. She did. And in uh, our family, uh, given my mother's personality, when she was uh, taken with something, we all became taken with something, whether we liked it or not. <laughs> so she dragged me and my brother and my cousin who was living with us at the time, not my father, off to church, uh, Evangelical Free Church in Felton, which is near the uh, Christian camping ground called Mount Hermon in uh, California. We would go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening prayer. And uh, and because my mother didn't know any better, she assumed because the Bible was so important to this group of Christians, they all must know their Bible really well. They must study it every night. So we studied it every night. <laughs> There's my mother smoking with the uh, smoke swirling in the living room. And uh, But we sat around reading the Gospel of John and trying to make head and, tails, head and tails of it. And through that whole experience, that reading of the Bible and the church, I became aware of the spiritual dimension of life. And uh, every Sunday, the pastor would give an altar call. That was part of the liturgy, quote-unquote, liturgy of the evangelical church. And I felt increasingly guilty as time went on. And I decided I was not going to feel guilty before Chris, after Christmas. So but the Sunday before Christmas, I vowed to go forward. I vowed to raise my hand during the altar call because that's all he ever asked for. Well, this Sunday, he pulled a fast one on me. He, after we all raised our hands, those of us who raised our hands, he said, I'd like those who raise their hands to come forward. So that was not fair, I felt. But I'd made a commitment, went forward, had a very tearful prayer with an elder in the bride's room. I think a lot of that was just pent-up psychological pressure for months of this sort of thing. I don't know that I can honestly say I felt deeply regretful for my sins at that point. Um, but, but the, the interesting thing was the next week during the altar call, I felt just as guilty. <laughs> it didn't solve my problem, but to show you how good the Lord is, it never occurred to me to back out. I, I had made a commitment. I'd made a decision 
And then all through the ups and downs of adolescence, I look back on that and go, it's amazing. Never once did I consider leaving the faith. Just it never occurred to me. So I really credit that to the grace of God and the Holy Spirit in my life, because that's a pretty unusual adolescence to have that, those type of experiences and not even think about the possibility of backing out. So that was probably my, the most formative part of my early life experience. Yeah, there's so much in there that resonates with me as an evangelical. I became an evangelical out of a non-religious household in the early part of high school. So for me, the miracle was, was I think my miracle is becoming Christian in high school and avoiding yeah. all of that, all, all those things I maybe could have regretted later on. I avoided all those things, which I also credit to, God, to God's grace. And, and that conversion experience, I find it interesting that you were baptized Catholic and received First Communion. And I, I think you'd say now, I certainly would, would suggest that there was some kind of we know this special grace mediated out there at that point. Uh-huh. No, I, I firmly believe that. When I, you know, obviously after I became a, a quote unquote event Christian, when I became a Christian at this church, they didn't honor infant baptism. So they had me baptized again and immersed. So for a long time, I teased about the fact that I'm kind of covered it, baptized as an adult, immersed <laughs> and infant sprinkled. So, <laughs> but the longer I've, you know, grown in the faith, the more I realize I think my infant baptism was was the real baptism. So <laughs> that one stuck. The one that had effect. <laughs> yeah. So what came what came next? You you grew up in this, I mean and I love the the story you you the picture you paint there with your mother at the table and the cigarette smoke wafting up, looking at the Bible <laughs> cracked open, studying that, that there's something there there's something powerful. And holy and 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 wonderful about a kind of a moment like that, right? Just crowding around, genuinely wrestling with the scriptures like that, trying to understand what it means. Just kind of plunked there on the table. Where do you go from there? What was next for you as you grew up and grew older? Well, uh, my mother became heavily involved in a in a ministry called Faith at Work, which emphasized the importance of being really honest, grittily honest about your faith, uh, its ups and downs, but to do that in a confidential small group setting, it was kind of the prelude to a lot of the small group movements that took hold of the larger church. So we'd, we'd uh, drive long drives to Southern California for these conferences. And, uh, I don't know if the names of Keith Miller or Bruce Larson, but they were kind of the stars of that world at the time, really good, honest, gracious men. Um, so that was part of my form formation. And then we moved eventually from that evangelical free church. I'm not quite sure why. I think part of it might've been the drive. It may have been my mother found the, uh, theology just a little too stifling, a little too legalistic. Although I will say this church was very gracious. My mother, uh, was a smoker. And so smoking was just not appropriate in, uh, in the evangelical free church. And after church, she was just dying for a cigarette. So she'd go into the parking lot and light it up. Well, one one elder I distinctly remember would leave Coffee Fellowship and come out and just talk to her. Uh, I thought that was for fundamentalists who didn't believe in smoking. That was awesome. <laughs> well, we started going to the Presbyterian Church in town, which had a youth group. Uh, and that was a very formative, being a part of a youth group that was led by a youth pastor who was evangelical in orientation and Oh man, there's just, you know, work, work week trips and uh, 
Sunday evening singing folk, folk hymns and uh, folk songs and small group Bible study. And yeah, so that was very formative. And then that got transitioned into college because I, I, although I went the first couple of years of college, went to a junior college near closer to my home. After that, I went to UC Santa Cruz, which is in the same town as first Presbyterian Santa Cruz. Duh. Um, and so I, I, I went back and forth between the, the college group at First Press and the college group that met on campus, which is more like an university group. And those were just common, you know, weekly Bible study, prayer groups, activities together, kind of discipleship and nurturing that uh, sustained me. I did have a crisis in college, though, because I did, uh, you know, I, I think a, a great deal of my early Christian life was, was uh, driven by duty. I think fundamentally good duty, but duty nonetheless that got kind of oppressive after a while. So that it occurred to me at some point that I was involved in all these leadership capacities in my church. I was in vacation Bible school teacher. I was in the youth choir. I led, was one of the leaders in the college group. And at some point it occurred to me that, and I was thinking about becoming a pastor. At some point it occurred to me that maybe God didn't want me to be a pastor. I never really asked him. <laughs> So, so what I decided was it was partly probably bur- combination burnout and uh, some honest spiritual self reckoning. But I said I'm just going to drop all my leadership responsibilities, and I'm just going to see what happens. I'm going to do nothing for Jesus except go to church and go to Bible study. And it was it was uh, during that period that. I'm not quite sure what the cause of it was, but I distinctly remember a couple of things. One is I started attending a class at the university. It was on uh, 20th century theology. So we were reading Boltman and Bart and um, Buber and Tillich and a bunch of others. Not exactly your hardcore evangelical types, but really interesting stuff. And during that same period, I absolutely fell in love with the Bible. I just could not get enough of it. Before that time, I read my Bible because it was my duty to read my Bible. That's what an evangelical does in the morning. You read your Bible and you say a prayer. But I just absolutely fell in love with Scripture, started keeping a personal notebook, my own kind of commentary on Romans, and couldn't get enough of it. And during that period, some things occurred that gave me a sense that, indeed, I was being called to the ministry. But... That was kind of a, a, conver- a, a, a moment of, con- or a, a period of conversion. There wasn't a moment. It was a two or three months. Before that, the Bible was just something I read because I was supposed to. When I was done, I could not stop reading the Bible. And theology became a fascination to me as well. And that has carried on. That has, that's something I still carry with me from, uh, from my evangelicalism, just an absolute. I read the Bible and I just, things pop, you know? Mm-hmm. And you know how it is. You read the same passage for the 50th time, and you go, wow, I never read that before. <laughs> it's an amazing experience. Yeah, Yeah. every single time. I feel like, wait a minute, didn't I read this book before? <laughs> exactly. Why didn't I notice that? Jesus, did what? that? Jesus did what over here? <laughs> or the audit phrase or, or, or uh, detail in a story will go, oh, my gosh, I didn't, I didn't notice that Mark t- talked about the feeding of 5,000, 5, the people sat down on the green grass. What's with that? You hardly ever get descriptive passages in the Bible. 
There was one of them. <laughs> so with your newfound love of the Bible, love of Scripture, did you begin, you went to Fuller Theological Seminary, I know. Uh-huh. Did you go right to there, running? <laughs> no, let's see. After college, I spent a year. My wife needed to finish college, uh, so we, uh, we moved to uh, Fresno, uh, where she could f- finish up a major that at classes at Fresno State that she had to take. I was a youth pastor there in a Presbyterian church. And it was after that year that we went to Fuller. So, um, and I love Fuller because of its theological and uh, biblical grounding. It's just a really academically strong school. But it became apparent when I went into the ministry that uh, it wasn't very good at preparing me th- for practical things like, so how do you hold a baby that you're about to baptize? <laughs> <laughs> how do you manage a elder meeting? How do you deal with a parent who's mad about something you did in the youth group? You know, <laughs> not very good at that stuff, but really good at the theology and Bible. Yeah. I think the answer to all those uh, situations is very carefully. <laughs> very carefully. Exactly. <laughs> So tell me a bit about being a Presbyterian pastor. You did that for 10 years. Yes. You've mentioned feeling a little bit unprepared, perhaps. Uh, what, how did that go for you? What was your experience uh, as a pastor? Well, my first stint was as, a, as an associate pastor of an English-speaking church in Mexico City. This was a church. It was the Union Church of Mexico City, and there are Union or United Churches all across the world, usually in capital capitals of the world, that minister to English-speaking congregants. So they might be American or British or Canadian or Australian. There's usually a handful of people from Europe who know English. And then in our church, there were 20% were perhaps Mexican, tended to be people, you know, diplomats, multi presidents, general managers of multinational corporations, a fairly elite group of people, uh, and at the time, I was pretty politically liberal, so it was a little, you know, walking on eggshells for a while until I had one really good experience. Uh, my first sermon, I wanted to be prophetic, you know, and preach to all these rich people. So, but I did it kind of hesitantly because I didn't want to offend anyone, but I still wanted to preach the word to them. And after the service, the head of general, uh, the general manager of Del Monte, which means he's the head of Del Monte, in Mexico, Del Monte Foods, big corporation, comes up to me and says, hey, Mark, you, you got to understand something about us. We're all big boys and girls here. We, we're in important positions. We're used to hearing people say things to us that we may or may not agree with. You're a pastor. Your job is to tell us what you think Jesus wants us to know, and you just need to say it, and we can handle it. Okay. (laughs) And it was experiences like that that gave me an insight into the really sincere and profound faith of even people that were rich (laughs) and powerful. Uh, It was a very good, and I had other experiences like that, that it was just a really interesting community to be a part of. And I'm ever grateful for for that because it just stopped me from holding these stereotypes of rich people being just wanting to be comfortable. Yeah, of course they want to be comfortable, but I'm middle class and I want to be comfortable. So what else is new? Uh, but it was mostly English speaking people and that was a good experience. And then from there, I went to a small church in Sacramento, a Grace Presbyterian, where I was the pastor. And it was also an interesting experience in the respect that the congregation 
was pretty liberal. I mean, it was, it, it would be fair to say it was a liberal con- Presbyterian congregation. Uh, after I'd been there a while, I was not quite sure why they had invited an evangelical. Clearly, I didn't hide the fact that it was evangelical. Why they hired me, I don't know. That uh, for most of them, they were truly liberal in the sense that uh, even though they disagreed with some of my, my theology, they were very gracious about listening to me and encouraging me and all those sort of things. But we did have a couple hardcore liberals who were very angry with me and tried to get me fired. And it was a very stressful time at points. But it turned out that it was really only one or two people. And the rest of the congregation was like, you know, give the guy a break. He's young. He's different than us. That's fine. Let's keep, let's keep moving forward. You know, it was very nice. It was a very encouraging congregation in that regard. I do feel sorry for, uh, I think I was a more competent youth pastor than I was a minister. I mean, I was on a steep learning curve as the, as the pastor of the church. And I always look back at that church and think how gracious they were to, to welcome me and to put up with my ministry for six years. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I was a bad pastor. I was just a young man trying to learn his, his craft, so to speak, you know? So you, you weren't long in pastoring. You were a decade. That's long enough. That's quite a long yeah. time. Uh, you, you moved on eventually. Eventually, you find yourself at Christianity Today, which is a very small magazine nobody reads or has heard of, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was your journey from, from pastor to into journalism, into that kind of yeah. world? Well, when I was a pastor in Mexico City, I wanted, I, I, I kind of wanted a creative outlet. And uh, I, I started thinking of writing essays and articles, uh, a lot of stuff that weren't necessarily uh, appropriate for the type of things I was doing at the church, because it was mostly, mostly use ministry. And the stuff I was trying to teach them was keeping the cookies pretty low. And I wanted to talk about things at a different level. Uh, and so articles gave me a chance to do that. And the third piece I ever submitted to anywhere was a piece to Christianity Today. Still think it's a pretty good piece. Uh, seven reasons why you shouldn't give to the poor. And basically what I did was I rehearsed all the reasons that we, especially we in the wealthy community in Mexico City, gave for being hesitant about giving to the poor. They're going to waste the money. You're being ripped off by people, all sorts of things. And I basically turned every one of those reasons around and showed how if we were, if God were to act that way toward us, it w- it, we would be in miserable shape. You know, if God hadn't given us his grace, well, he'll give us his grace, but they'll just ignore it and they'll just go on their way anyway. Well, yeah, they did, but God kept giving us his grace. Anyway, it was accepted by Christianity today. Now, actually as a young writer and as a young man, I thought, well, naturally it was a great piece. I'm a great writer. And of course the next 20 pieces I wrote for anyone got rejected. <laughs> so I had to spend some time learning my craft and when I was in Sacramento, one of the pastors in the, in the presbytery was, had written regularly for Leadership Journal. And so at one point, I asked him to look at a piece I, had, I was about to submit to, to leadership. And he, he, uh, I said, could you kind of look at this and tell me what you think? And when that manuscript came back, that was the days when people had paper and red pens. It was bloody with, with marks. But I read his comments. I read his edits. And I, at bingo, I thought, I get it. It was like a very timely moment to receive all that criticism. And I, I understood exactly what was needed to publish in leadership. And from that point on, everything I, I presented them, they published. And so after a while, the, I, I was hoping that the editor would ask me to write the lead or cover story at some point. And he phoned me one day and said, 
how would you like to apply for a job? And uh, although that took another few months to actually happen, I felt a genuine call that that's what I should do next and give it a shot. And it turned out to be such a good fit that within a couple of years, I decided to demit, which means give back my credentials to the presbytery because I had, um, I, I knew I was going to be a journalist for the rest of my life. There was no reason to keep the, the title of reverend for any reason. Where was your, your faith journey at this point? You were an evangelical, you were a Presbyterian pastor for a bit. I know some who, who are pastors who eventually become Catholic, they encounter problems or difficulties with, with scripture or teaching that, that gives them questions, that, that gives them pause about the, the authority to just kind of interpret this. And that's yeah. often a, a route for pastors. You were a pastor and then kind of put that aside to go into journalism. But was, was there an experience of kind of questioning, asking some questions even during the time of being a pastor? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was in Sacramento, I still tried to keep up my quiet, my, you know, evangelical quiet times with the reading of scripture and then extemporaneous prayer to God in the morning. But I I was becoming increasingly weary of my prayer because it never expressed how I was really feeling. It was pedantic and it was boring. I just didn't communicate. I understand that God cares about the babblings of children, but here I was, I had a master's in divinity. I should be able to offer something a little bit better than that, but that's all I felt I was offering. So I, uh, I started to explore liturgical traditions. I remember attending morning mass for a few mornings to see that what that was about. The service, the service at the local Catholic church was Interesting, but didn't really hook me in any particular way. Although I went, I did go off and buy a St. Joseph missile and tried to use it for my morning prayer and found it completely impenetrable. So I dropped, I dropped that. But I did run across the Book of Common Prayer, the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, which is, which is an extraordinary book of prayer. And I found prayers in there that after I read them, I think, you know, like the prayer of confession, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've left undone. And it goes on. And I'd read that prayer and I'd go, that's exactly what I've been trying to say. And the same thing with the general thanksgiving and other prayers. And so I was, uh, in a sense, converted to Anglican prayer uh, during my stint as a Presbyterian pastor. So much so that when I became a journalist in Illinois, uh, when we started looking for churches, instinctually uh, we tended a couple Presbyterian churches. But then at one point I thought, you know, I love this book of common prayer for my own personal prayer. I wonder if I'd like the worship. And I attended a local church, St. Mark's Episcopal Church. And the first six weeks I went to the service, I wept. Because it just, it was just so beautiful. The liturgy was just so beautiful. I think the most moving thing for me was to see, because I knew it was a middle to upper middle class congregation, probably a few wealthy people in it. But during the communion, row by row, rich, poor, Young, male, female, Democrats, Republicans, they stood, stood in the aisle, knelt at the communion rail, all in the same simple posture of humility, held out their hands to receive the Lord. That was really powerful for me, really powerful. So that's when I became uh, Episcopalian slash Anglican. (laughs) And as you can probably tell, that's a a short step away from Catholicism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not gonna. It's, it's. I'm not gonna say it's a common route, but maybe I think it. Maybe it is a common route. <laughs> it really I, is in the Wheaton area. I find it really interesting 
that you were kind of converted to Anglican prayer, like you say. I mean, I'm not sure what your experience of, I mean, I think you've given us a little bit of an idea of what your experience was with prayer as an evangelical. Certainly, I mean, I came from a Pentecostal tradition that even saying the Lord's Prayer, even repeating that prayer verbatim was considered taboo because it was it was a repeated kind of rote yeah. prayer. And our prayers right. must be must be spontaneous, must be from the heart, right. must be genuine. <laughs> or else yeah, or else we're 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 the Pharisees in a sense, right? We're just repeating those prayers on the street corner senselessly. (laughs) So, but you've tapped into something there that I think is very poignant and very beautiful because I found when I became Catholic, suddenly you have access to these, these prayers that people have written and put thought into and, and could possibly be very, very ancient depending on where you're drawing them from that speak the words that you, you never could put words to and it's not as if i didn't feel i'm sure you feel the same way i didn't feel as if i were just repeating rote prayers i feel as though i tapped into this source that could finally speak the words i couldn't speak in this beautiful way that was not rote repetition but like incredibly fulfilling and 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 Rich, uh, yeah, rich, right? And very similar to the experience of reading scripture. I mean, when you say those prayers, even though you've said them a hundred times, there's something about a phrase that'll all of a sudden pop for you in a, in a new and fresh way. So that it's, you know, they talk about rote prayers, but they're, I never felt, I've never felt they're rote at all. So we joked about the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, is sometimes a road, uh, a pit stop towards the Catholic Church. And I've, yeah, there you go. Had a number of, of converts who've told similar stories. I I was for a time looking into the Anglican Church here in Canada, uh, which is still quite uh, well. It's day by day, it's separating itself from the Church of England, but w- at the yeah. time was still quite associated with this very ancient, rich Anglican tradition and past. And I looked there for a bit. wasn't long at looking when I ran into some problems of authority and, and structure and different ways of interpreting the uh, what what the church is. So I became Catholic. For you, I'm curious to hear, because this wasn't uh, a pit stop like I stopped in for a little bit, did some reading and kept on going on the way to the Catholic church. Yours was a longer, a longer yeah. time in the Anglican church. Probably, yeah, uh, would have been 1990 till 2000. 18 or so, yeah. 20, 20, 18 years, 20 years, yeah. Yeah, so not an unsubstantial time. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Can you unpack for us kind of the trajectory of your faith at that time and what maybe led you to begin asking questions that eventually led you towards the Catholic Church. I can think, and I've had others on this show, I had Paul McCusker on this show from Adventures in Odyssey telling his story and his time in the Episcopal Church and what eventually led him to become Catholic. But tell us what your experience there and what, what eventually led you to... Well, uh, yeah. So one of the things that attracted me to the Anglican Communion was at the time that I became an Anglican, it was a communion a worldwide communion, a global communion. There were, there were various and sundry annual meetings, or not annual, but regular meetings of bishops from all across the world to discuss things that they had in common and to, to issue guidelines for how each of the member churches could 
and should conduct themselves in certain matters. I'm not quite sure why that was so important to me, but I can just tell you that it was. Uh, I think I was already dissatisfied with the fractured nature of most of Protestantism. You know, at the time when I became an Episcopal, I mean, there were probably 20,000 Protestant denominations, probably closer to 30,000 now. It's just amazing how quickly they multiply. But I felt the Anglican Communion was trying to hold things together globally. Now, I did recognize some early problems, uh, and I wasn't too surprised by them, knowing, having read a lot about church history, I knew how the church could be dysfunctional in a lot of ways. But I was becoming increasingly dismayed with how dysfunctional the Episcopal Church was theologically. That is to say, in America alone, there was a, a bishop in Pennsylvania and another one in New, New Jersey who denied the resurrection, who denied the Trinity, who denied the divinity of Christ. And there was no willpower among the other bishops to discipline them in any way. And this was like amazing to me. But again, on the books, the Episcopal Church was orthodox. So all one can say is these are renegade bishops and they're going to end their term and we'll move on. But what happened was uh, during the, uh, you know, the 2003-2004 crisis in, uh, you know, most people think of it as a crisis in human sexuality. It was really a crisis in biblical authority and in church discipline and in church canon law is what it was. Because the, the Anglican bishops across the world at the, at the previous Lambeth conference or the 1990, uh, I forget what year it was, they basically said uh, sexual relations are to be had between a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment of marriage. And everything outside of that is unbiblical. Well, the Episcopal Church in the United States and the Canadian Church Anglican Church just basically said, heck with that. And there was no real effort to get them back on board. There seemed to be made internationally among most, many of the Anglican churches, there was this like, well, let's not get too harsh too quickly. Let's, you know, there just didn't seem to be the willpower to actually do anything about it. And eventually uh, a large conservative block broke away in America. That was the Anglican Mission in America, which eventually became the Anglican Church in North America. And at that point, the Anglican Communion was no longer communion, a real genuine communion in which different Anglicans across the world actually tried to work with each other and guide each other in their lives. It was a federation at best. That was really disappointing to me. So I became, in a sense, a practicing congregation at that point. I found a local parish that uh, was really helping me. Church of the Resurrection at Wheaton. Uh, really, you know, our church uh, in uh, Glen Ellen, St. Mark's, where I was attending, split. I was one of the elder uh, wardens at the time. It was very emotionally exhausting. I found great healing at this local Anglican Church of the Resurrection. Uh, really helped develop my prayer life. I began to explore a kind of more mystical Christianity. I mean, it was, it was, it was a charismatic church, it is a charismatic church. So there was, it wasn't an overtly charismatic, but if you paid attention, you could tell some people were speaking in tongues now and then. Prayers for healing were very common. Uh, I had a really strange experience. I don't believe in this. <laughs> it's one of those things. I don't believe in this. I don't believe it's genuine. But one day I was, I was, I was uh, this close to becoming slain in the spirit. You know, that experience where they pray on your forehead and then you fall down and faint. Well, I've seen, been to those services where it's the, a, male, a big male pastor 
grabs the person who's coming for prayer, gets literally gets them off balance, shoves them on their forehead as he's praying. Well, and that 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 physical exertion combined with the the ecstasy of the moment, people are falling all over the place. But you can see what's going on. But in this case, I was I went up for prayer. They had prayer ministers during communion while people were going forward, or after you had communion, you could have someone pray for you. I went up to this diminutive little skinny woman, very quiet. And I forget, I can't remember what I asked prayer for. And I can't remember if she put her hand on my forehead, but often they would lay hands on you. So they might, she might've had her hand on my head. I don't remember, but she certainly didn't have the strength to do anything manipulative to me. And all of a sudden I felt this, my whole fate, my whole uh, consciousness went white and I became weak in the knees and I knew I was going to fall down. And I just said, I had too much pride. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So it's one of those times where I feel like I resisted the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I don't know exactly what was going on there, but it was, but it gives you a, something that kind of the atmosphere of the church. Those were the sort of things that could happen uh, in a church. Not very often. There were healings, not very often, but it was a, it was a really great place to be healed and to begin to explore the more, experiential dimensions of the Christian life, which as a Presbyterian, mentally, you know, intellectual, and an Anglican, intellectual, it was a very important kind of juncture in my life to kind of open up, not just my mind to the Lord, but my heart to the Lord. And that was very important. And for a while, I, I kind of put, I think my, my yearning for something deeper and more profound than evangelicalism was satisfied by first a journey into kind of uh, experimenting a little too, uh, it's, it doesn't get it that I was really looking for something in a more mystical experience. I read the mystics. I read about contemplation. I tried to practice contemplation. I actually had what I consider some genuine experience. Some, some I will admit I manipulated, but I think some were really genuine. But it proved to be a dead end in the in this respect. I noticed even after I had it, what I felt was a genuine experience of God coming in, coming to me in some special way during a prayer. I felt elated afterwards, but I noticed it made little difference in actual my behavior as a Christian, <laughs> which meant that there was important for some things, but it didn't quite, yeah, it didn't, I don't want to put it, it to put it to say it didn't work wasn't, isn't quite right. But most of the stuff I've been taught, if you get into the presence of God, you will be transformed. Well, that's not necessarily true. You will have an extraordinary experience of love and of the presence of God, but the change in your moral life, that's, that's, that's part of that, but it's really different. So that, that tells you some of the things I was doing during that Anglican period. Yeah. So I, I get the, the splitting of the Anglican church, um, the Episcopal church, that splitting from the communion. I mean, when you first, encountered Anglicanism, you'd mentioned that the, the diversity of the congregation was something that you found so beautiful. These different people, all different classes, Republicans, Democrats, all different kinds of people going forward and kneeling for communion. And that is uh, an appealing, beautiful picture. But then to see this communion begin to break apart internationally and begin to fracture. And you said you kind of then focused your energy on one local kind of parish, became a congregationalist and yeah. uh, this uh, into this kind of uh, mystic side of Christianity when did your dissatisfaction kind of bubble up again? You said it was kind of a dead end in the in the mystic Christianity because it didn't satisfy ultimately, I think, what you were 
maybe looking for? When did when did you become? Well, I think less. I would I would probably less identified it as dissatisfaction at the time. Uh, but I had some experiences that began to reinforce my passion for the Catholicity of the Church. One of them when when I was editor at Christian History uh, during this time. Christian History was a is a quarterly magazine that um, that uh, you know talked about Christian history from the beginning. So it included Catholic and Orthodox and Evangelical figures and events. So two events in that in that stand were very formative for me. One was during the issue in which we were concentrating on Francis of Assisi. Uh, naturally, I became extremely impressed with his devotion, his devotion to Christ, kind of over-the-top devotion, actually. But nonetheless, he was an impressive figure for very practical and, you know, kind of personal reasons. And in the evening, because I was interested in theology and theological currents, I was reading John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of Truth. And it's such a brilliant document, so imbued with a Catholic sensibility. I just, one night I thought, this is amazing. This same church produced both a John Paul II and a Francis of Assisi. Then we, we sponsored a Christian history tour of the Mediterranean area, Christian sites in the Mediterranean area. And when we were in Rome on the day off, we, uh, I decided that that was a Wednesday when John Paul II was giving a, a papal audience. I like to say that I had a personal audience with the Pope, but it was with about 10,000 other people. <laughs> <laughs> Intimate. So we're, so we're waiting in St. Peter's Square there for him to show up. And there are Catholic nuns from Portugal singing praise choruses. There are people from Spain and France and Eastern Europe and each breaking out in song in their own, you know, uh, language and praise of God. I, I assume that's what they were doing. That's what they were saying. And then standing there and looking up above in that semicircle, you see a number of saints up above surrounding us all. And, and then, of course, Pope John uh, comes in his Pope mobile and comes around, and then he gives an address in like three or four languages or four or five languages. And I'm thinking, there is no Protestant church that can do this. This is a worldwide communion with an exclamation point, all capital letters. This is amazing. I was deeply moved by that, deeply moved. Now, that didn't lead to an immediate, uh, where's the local church and how can I sign up? But it certainly was a, an exclamation point in my understanding that I needed to think about Catholicism a heck of a lot more than I had been. <laughs> That's a, that is a beautiful picture. I think that anybody could admit that that's a beautiful picture that you're painting, Catholic or non-Catholic. I think even somebody who's quite anti-Catholic could say, like, look at that, the unity of that uh, that moment. I think that's profound, and I think it's profound that this idea of church unity uh, was so fundamental to you and so important to you. I remember I, I got into, well, a bit of trouble, I'll say, when I... I I put something on Twitter at one point, and I think it was during one of the more recent votes that the Anglican Church was going through, at least here in Canada, on 
you know, the next level step with, uh, with same sex marriage and sexuality and these questions. And I have some, I have some good friends who are Anglican priests and I like to rib them once in a while. So I posted something about, you know, what's more important, you know, John 17, where Jesus talks about unity of the church or this question of, of this very modern question of human sexuality, a very provocative question I put on Twitter and got a number of responses and, but a number of those responses uh, from evangelicals, from my Anglican friends, from Anglican pastors, priests, were, were to question the idea of Christian unity at all. Kind of, well, what is John 17 even, like, why is it even important? What are we even talking about oh, unity? God. And it was That's such, so and it, wow. so I, I find it interesting because, and I think it probably is the case for you too, when I was an, when I was an evangelical, at least, in my congregation, we were under the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, Part of a, then a wider North American umbrella, but it wasn't as if we were tied to our denomination, like denominations maybe used to be. We were we were Christians, and we were united under the in the body of Christ. And this idea of unity wasn't wasn't so central. And so, I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised that people were pushing back at my little little jab against. Uh, uh, at you know what's more important unity or sexuality because it wasn't on the the radar of many people the idea of Christians should strive for unity um, but for you it was on your radar and when you saw it then here in this Catholic context that profoundly impacted you so it was obviously on your radar as I think yeah. it, it should be for many Christians but I can see that being so profound then to see that experience of all those people in different places in this one united thing that, like you said, you can't find that. A glimpse of that existed in the Anglican communion, but as rapidly, uh, even since your time at, you know, experiencing that very first yeah. fracturing, it's become even more fractured since then, right? But it's important. Yeah. Yeah, I will say that John 17 passage became increasingly important over that period of time. And it became important because I was evangelical. Because what does Jesus say in that they will know you are my disciples if if they're one, you know, if you are going to be, if you're one. That the most effective evangelistic method, if you would, for helping people see the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ is for us to be one. And Protestantism is anything but one. And yet, and like you said, when push comes to shove in a Protestant congregation, whether it's a matter of... Uh, whether it's a matter of doctrine or church polity, it's for Protestants, it's much more important that we agree with one another in this body than we stay in one body. And if we can't, we're just going to split. Whereas in Catholicism, I think the greatest sin, heresy is a big deal sin in Catholicism, no question about it. But schism is also a major sin in Catholicism. And uh, the early church fathers were deeply afraid of that for good reason. And so uh, I've just come to believe that, you know, as a theologian, of course, I'm very interested in theology. Uh, and schism was just not an issue. Of course, you're going to split if you don't agree, if, if somebody's got something wrong. But now it's like I'm, I'm equally committed to, to both uh, anti-heresy and anti-schism. And I think another thing that occurred to me was I do believe that we should be working for the unity of all Christians, not only between, between Protestants, uh, but between Protestants and Catholic. But it occurred to me that as this became really important, I said, well, I could, I could be on 
be a part of these ecumenical conversations in which I'm on the Protestant side, trying to talk with Catholics and trying to figure out who's going to give up what for us to be unified. Or, but what I could see was, no matter in every ecumenical conversation, nobody wants to give up anything. Well, we agree with this, we agree with that, but, you know, Presbyterians will say, we're not going to give up representative democracy in terms of our government. Baptists say, we're not going to give up pure democracy. You know, Episcopals and Methodists say, we're not giving up our bishops. And no one's going to give up anything, but we're going to be one somehow. Uh, and of course, Catholic Protestant, we're not going to, we're not going to submit to the, to the Pope or the Magisterium. Forget it. And it occurred to me that to seek unity means to give up something. <laughs> and maybe I should just abandon, uh, and I did. I mean, I, I didn't just do it. It sort of happened naturally. Abandon my essential uh, epistemology as a Protestant. See, the essential epistemology of a Protestant is before you join something, you kind of take a measure in your own mind about what you believe. Then you look at the beliefs of this church or group you're going to become a part of. And if they agree kind of 90%, you kind of step in and you agree to do it. It's very much about aligning what's going on in my head with what's on paper over here. And that's how a lot of Protestants approach Catholicism. They say, I'd become Catholic except for transubstantiation. I'd become Catholic except for immaculate conception. Well, that, as soon as I made a kind of this gestalt shift, I realized that's, that's really not, you, you, you can't become a Catholic and mark off a bunch of check boxes about what you agree or don't agree with. That's to approach Catholicism and with a Protestant epistemology about what's, what's true, good, and beautiful is this checklist of theological doctrines. And it occurred to me that when to become a Catholic means, it doesn't mean you throw out your mind, but it does mean you give your mind to something bigger than yourself. It's not about your individual beliefs of what's going on in your head, but it's about taking your heart, mind, and soul and saying to the church, shape me, teach me. I want to be a disciple. Uh, and when I run across, you know, as a Protestant, some of the doctrines you run across, you're going, what is that about? <laughs> Immaculate conception. Where's that in the Bible? Come on. <laughs> but the point is not to say, I now have to believe this. Otherwise, I'm not a good Catholic. It's more. Well, Catholics have believed this for some time. And some of the richest and most thoughtful theologians think it's, it's a tremendous doctrine and it's biblical. Well, why do they think that? I should learn. I should learn about that. I should try to appreciate that. Even if I find it, because I've been a Protestant for 50 years, I find it a little foreign, I'm still going to go, but that's what the church teaches. And I want to learn what the church teaches and why it teaches it and do the best I can to be a teacher of it as well when the opportunity presents itself. And that's just, that's just not the way Protestants go about trying to discern truth, beauty, and goodness. It, it's just, in order to become a Catholic at that level, you have to kind of make that gestalt shift or you have the Holy Spirit has to make it. And I find this true of some Catholic converts who convert to Catholicism because they like the doctrine. They like the, the institution's fundamentally conservative nature. So they became John Paul II converts and Benedict converts. But along comes a bishop or a pope who's not quite in that same world and all of a sudden, they, they're just backing away, and they're making all these criticisms and what's gone wrong with the church. And, and it occurred to me, that's a really bad way to be a Catholic. 
Because while I resonate more with a John Paul II and less with a Francis, Francis is the Pope. And God wants me to teach me something through Francis. Something I might never think about myself. I've never been a, been a, a, a strong advocate of uh, environmentalism, but it's really important to Francis. So guess what? It's more important to me now <laughs> because it's important to Francis. <laughs> so I figure no matter who the Pope is, there's something I need to learn from that. I need to be taught. You put that so well that the central uh, perspective shift that is necessary and how we approach church and looking for a body of Christians and understanding our faith as a Protestant evangelical versus as a Catholic. I last week uh, had a guy called Austin Suggs on my show. He's a theology student at Moody Bible Institute as a, has a YouTube channel. He's an evangelical who's asking questions about the Catholic faith and his questions are profound, even for somebody who's been Catholic for a while and a convert and he said something that really that really resonated with me, I think, is so important to underscore. And, and what you said reminded me of what he said, was the idea that the central claim you have to kind of accept from the Catholic Church is their claim to authority. And once you accept their, the claim to authority, the Catholic Church has all those other things, as weird and wacky as they seem, like the Immaculate Conception, like these yeah. different strange things that Catholics do, uh, and there's lots of strange things that we do. <laughs> Once you accept that central claim, though, everything else, it, you might not understand it right away, but it falls into place. It's inevitable that yeah. you accept those things, too, if you accept that central claim. And this guy, this theology student who's evangelical, said that to me. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely yes. right. And that's what you really have to understand, I think, about people who are becoming Catholic is they have accepted that claim and that's where you have to start. You don't, you don't, as you say, agree with these different things and become Catholic for these different little reasons. And, Oh, well, yeah, I guess they're right on this thing too. It's really a fundamental accepting of the claim of the Catholic church, historically present, spiritually, theologically, practically, and the rest begins to fall into place. Do you agree? And I wonder how you came to accept that claim. Yeah, I think one of the reasons is because I've been a student of history, it became clear to me early on that the only two churches that had the right to claim to be the true church was the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church because of their historical precedent. These churches had a historical, institutional, organic continuity with the disciples. And that, to me, raised the level of their authority quite high. Um, and forced me to get, kind of think about why that was the case and how it was the case today. I do think it's interesting when, when uh, some Protestants say, well, how can you believe in transubstantiation? That seems like so much hocus pocus. And I'm, I say to them, okay, as a Christian, I'm asked to believe that almighty and eternal God, omnipotent and all-powerful and all-knowledgeable, was born as a baby in Bethlehem. <laughs> died on a cross and rose again. Now, now help me here, which is harder to believe <laughs> that bread becomes the body and blood of our, you know, the body of our Lord or that God became man and dwelt among us. Give me a break. <laughs> so, uh, so much of what happens after that, I mean, we kind of lose perspective of how astounding it is. These, these basic gospel truths 
And then we, we, we strain it a gnat of these other things when really, yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, what was your, your view of the Reformation up to this point of becoming Catholic? You're, you said you're a student of history, you studied history, you studied theology. You, I mean, did you see it as this thing that had to happen? And so, okay, I mean, I'm an Anglican, I'm, I'm Presbyterian, this is good this happened, and the Catholic Church has gone its own way. I mean, what, what were your views of the necessity of the Reformation, I guess, and, and, and why that had to happen? Well, I think a Reformation of some sort was required. I think most, most historians agree the Catholic Church was in, sad, was in a sad state theologically and ethically at that point. Something needed to happen. I think the, uh, I think the Catholic Church made a fundamental error in not figuring out a way to keep Luther in the church uh, because his reforms were necessary. And in fact, uh, 500 years later, the the Lutheran uh, World Federation and the Catholic Church, uh, you know, came up with this accord of the things they held in common. And it's clear that the Catholic Church could welcome a kind of Lutheran way of looking at things without feeling like they had to be excommunicated. But such were the times that that was not possible. And uh, Luther was was left out. And that just, of course, that led to the Anabaptists who were radically breaking away as well as the Reformed and Calvin. It just set a precedent of a breakaway. Um, so at some level, it was, it was necessary. But I do think Protestant rhetoric about it is a little exaggerated. I mean, in the time I was editor of Christian History, a, a couple books came out about the English Reformation and how destructive it was to Catholic spirituality at the time. The Catholic spirituality at the local level and in the monasteries was not all that corrupt. It was, it was very, it was very meaningful to people and it was, it was really helpful to them. And Henry VIII came along and just kind of ransacked the church for all its wealth. And that was a very unfortunate period. And then since I've been a Catholic, uh, I've read, you know, I read the daily office. I usually read morning prayer and I usually read, about the the saint of the day and i'm just stunned at the number of really devout catholics who were martyred in england during that reformation period really cruelly and horribly i mean as a protestant i heard about ridley and latimer and other protestant saints who got killed by the catholics never heard about these other guys who at the risk of you know priests at the risk of their lives left france and secretly ministered in in England to give the Eucharist to people and then were killed when they were discovered. I mean, this is extraordinary. So it was a really terrible time. Um, and whether it was necessary or not, it happened. Although I do agree. Um, I forget the title of the book by uh, evangelical historian, Mark Knoll. It's something to the effect has the reformation done its work. And the idea is, has the Reformation done its work? And is there really a good enough reason for Catholics and Protestants to be separate? And I, I kind of resonate with that question and say, no, I don't think there is. I just don't think there is. I think there's a way, just like the Catholics have figured out, how do you get some Eastern Orthodox under the umbrella? Okay, you, you give way on things like married priests and a f- couple things on liturgy and you, you make it happen. Anglicans, same thing. Anglicans who become Catholics, the priests get to keep their spouses. The Catholic Church is very creative 
uh, at solving problems like that. If the party wanting to join really wants to join and not just be a, a cantankerous, you know, finger in the, in the church. <laughs> so there's certainly a movement afoot and you'd probably recognize this uh, working with Christianity today of evangelical non-denominational churches, uh, no affiliation sometimes with any larger denomination, bringing back a lot of this elements of Catholic or ancient church liturgy. And there's certainly a, a growing desire to look to the ancient church for wisdom. It's I think it's done in, in an interesting way in, in Protestant evangelical circles because I don't know that it's necessarily read as a whole. It's more picked and and chosen. I wonder what you'd say, though, to somebody who says, okay, Mark, you just didn't find the right church. You just didn't find the right Protestant church that had this ancient liturgy that respected tradition. And and look, these churches are changing. They're, They're bringing that back in. They're focused on the Bible, but they have traditional elements and, and liturgy. I mean, I, I certainly encountered this in, in my own journey, looking for something more, litur- a, a, a liturgy and connection to history and, and tradition. I couldn't, I couldn't find it. But there is that, that question. Does somebody have to become Catholic to, to experience those things? And, and, and maybe, I don't want to lead you too much, maybe why is that not good enough to just find a church that does those elements? You know, well, uh, for good and for ill, when, when evangelicals who are experimenting and they start using candles and they start using the beautiful written prayers of the church and they start celebrating the Eucharist every week, uh, some of it's just novel. It's just amazing. And, you know, you know, you put candles in a dark room and have people pray. It's just a wonderful experience, no matter who's doing that. So some of it's that, like, this is really weird. This is really different. This is like kind of gives their spiritual life a fresh start. But I don't think in a lot of cases they really understand what's going on. Uh, And second, what happens is uh, you end up with churches that essentially pick and choose from church tradition about what they want to do, which makes them, for all the liturgy and stuff they use, they're essentially still Protestants. They're they're creating their own religion and religious tradition. I mean, a classic case is this Church of the Resurrection, where I'm at, which had, which has in some ways a Catholic sensibility in that, in this, that the priest, the uh, priest who's also the bishop of the local diocese, is, um, he's committed to an all-male priesthood. And he gives reasons like, well, the Catholic Church has taught that for the longest time, and I respect that. And uh, that's, the, the, the priest represents Jesus at the altar. So he kind of takes that. But then he's married. <laughs> he's married as a bishop, which violates both the Orthodox tradition because you, you know, the, the bishops have to be celibate in the Orthodox tradition and priests have to be celibate in the Catholic tradition. But he says, well, that doesn't matter. And he does some things that because the church has done it always, and he does that a lot. The church has always done this, has always said that. But then when it doesn't suit his fancy, he just goes his own way. That's not important. And that just strikes me as a, it's, it's that Protestant sensibility that in the end, I get to choose, I get to shape my own faith. I get to shape my own religion. 
which is not a posture of, sorry, uh, perhaps some listeners are going to be offended. It is not a posture of humility. It's a posture of, to put it most dramatically, it's a posture of pride. I'm going to determine what's right and what's wrong about my faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live that way. Whereas the Catholic sensibility and the Orthodox sensibility is, no, I'm going to give myself to something bigger than myself. It's a posture of basic humility. And if there's some things in the liturgy I like, awesome. If there's something in the liturgy I don't understand and don't like, too bad. <laughs> you know, you kind of have to learn how to, how to deal with it. And that's a much better, that's a much better place for a human to seems to me, especially a person like myself, who's just prideful and strong headed. That's just a really important thing to do. Really, really important to be able to go, go, ah, I'm not sure if I want to do this, but that's what the church does. And so I'm going to do it. Not my idea. Well, I, I think the alternative would be somebody would say, well, no, you submit yourself to the Bible, but then of course, the question becomes, well, whose interpretation of the Bible? Yeah. And that comes back to the pride. That comes back to, as you said, and you, you, I think, eloquently illustrated the idea of you are checking out things in your head first before joining a church because you're making sure they line up, line up with your interpretation of the Bible. Or maybe N.T. Wright's interpretation or your favorite theologian's interpretation or a collection yeah. of, a, of theologians' interpretations. But it comes down to you interpreting the Bible you're submitting not to the Bible, but it's a living text, but you're the one that decides what pieces to submit yeah. to, right? In a sense, does yeah. that, does that make sense? And that's what's happening with the, uh, it's even, it's even more dramatic than that in the Episcopal church in the sense that they did have a study of human sexuality in the late nineties in the American Episcopal church. And this body of bishops and other theologians gathered for a few years and studied it. And what was interesting is they came to the conclusion that the Bible does teach that marriage is intended for a, between a man and a woman and a life, lifelong commitment of marriage. That's what sexuality is for. That's why God designed it. Okay. Part two of the study, but God is doing a new thing. So there was a willingness to admit what the Bible teaches. But on the other hand, there was this, the times have changed and what the Holy Spirit wants us to do today is actually different than what he wanted us to do in AD 30 or AD 60 when Paul wrote his letters, which is a stunning kind of self-admission that this religion is about what we think, not about, not about what the Bible says in a church that supposedly is founded on the Bible. <laughs> so that was the most dramatic instance of that, the falseness of that view, yeah. I think it's, I think it's equally, maybe not dramatic, more, more shockingly mundane when you look at these churches and individuals, and I would have been in this camp as well, who read my Bible very literally and took it very seriously, but then could get to a passage like John 6 or a passage or where, where we read about baptism and, 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 and somehow broke from these traditional views of these things, uh, really reading that text really awkwardly to avoid what seemed like a literal or a very yeah. clear plain sense right, interpretation. Right. But I would have called myself a plain sense, very literal reader huh. of the Bible. I mean, that's not shocking in the sense that it's breaking away from, you know, it's doing a study and dramatically breaking away from just ignoring the Bible. It's more this mundane kind of, ah, well, it's, it's in there, but it's not yeah. what it says it is. And it's been 500 years of, this Anabaptist tradition kind of rejecting that as what it is down through the today. 
it, it it's more this mundane game of 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 broken telephone than it is a dramatic break away from the church, but it is a break away from what the church has really fundamentally believed for the overwhelming majority yeah. of church history and the Catholic and Orthodox churches still believe today. But somehow, as a very literal leader of the Bible, well, it's not what our, it's not what yeah, our denomination believes. I'm familiar with the, uh, the YouTube channel, the Lutheran satire, but it's very funny sometimes. And because Lutherans have a very high view of baptism as well, they have this one presentation, and it's cartoonish in, in their presentation, where they, they're talking to a Pentecostal or a Baptist who believes that baptism is merely symbolic. And then they quote these verses, verses from Paul that talk about baptism actually changing something in us. And it's just really funny, the comparison when here you have the Baptists who think they're interpreting the Bible literally, and they just cannot hear how baptism is not just a symbol. It does something to people. <laughs> Talk to me for a second about the the altar calls that you used to go to. I've been to these two as a younger evangelical. You mentioned that it, it never solved, solves the guilt problem. And this is something that I think so many evangelicals, I think, are missing out on and, and, and can't experience uh in the way that I think and the Catholic Church believes God intended in confession, in the sacrament of reconciliation. We, we, we sin, we pray and ask for forgiveness, we go to altar calls and ask for, for, for prayers to help heal us. But you sometimes can't shake that feeling of, oh, well, I hope God heard me. I know he did, intellectually, but I don't necessarily feel that. Or you, you feel that, you whip up that feeling, and that emotion kind of fades away, and you're kind of left with what you felt like before a, a miserable sinner sometimes what what's your experience with i mean we can even say the sacraments in general not just confession but can you talk a bit about that element of the catholic faith and yeah. i mean you you would have had those pieces as an episcopal or an anglican right. but i wonder if there's a, a deepness or or a, or a depth that you want to speak to i will just say in regard to altar calls i think the altar call is like an attempt to have a, 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 a liturgical substitute for communion in some ways. Um, or maybe, maybe it's a kind of confessional because I noticed immediately as a young evangelical that a lot of my friends, that a revivalist would come through town or we'd have a special missions week and there'd be an altar call at the end of the week. And even though they'd already gone forward in an altar call, they felt compelled to go again because in the meantime they had sinned and, They'd become lax, and so they needed to recommit themselves. It's kind of that that notion that I have to do something to recommit myself and get myself right with God. Well, that's not completely uh, disconnected from uh, Catholic sacraments, except that we believe that they have, they're not just acts of human will that we're trying to get ourselves right with God. There's something really powerful in which God is involved in this situation. I have found confession just really powerful uh really annoying <laughs> really embarrassing to have to go to my priest and say remember that sin i confessed last time it's not gotten better <laughs> i'm still in trouble and the amazing thing about the confessional is it presents a what i considered one of the great paradoxes good paradoxes of the catholic church on the one hand at least my experience with confession is it's absolutely clear 
that we're dealing with a God of mercy here. The Catholic priest makes that absolutely, every priest I've gone to, of God's patience and mercy and his wanting to forgive us and willingness to forgive us. There's no sin that we can't confess that he won't forgive. It's the whole thing is framed with mercy. And yet, when you're done, the priest often gives you some concrete advice on how you can get your act together. I remember one priest I'd said, forgive me, Father, but, I, I, you know, I think I, I, I desire to be a saint. And I, I desire it, I, you know, when I say that, I desire it because I want to be an extraordinary Christian. I want other people to look up to me and admire me. But he said, that's not a sin. We all should want to be saints. So there's this notion that in the confessional too, that not only are we forgiven, but now let's take some steps so that we can become holy and maybe to the point of becoming a saint. It's like both those things are going on at the same time. And it's really, to me, it's a powerful and extraordinary sacrament. Yeah. And I think, I think out of maybe all the sacraments, I don't know if I've thought deeply enough to say this is true, but it's, it's the sacrament that makes you go, yeah, this sacramental system that God's established, this makes a lot of sense because it's so tangible and it's so, it's, it's the priest saying the words of Christ, but to yeah. hear those words, that's different than me reading them in my Bible and knowing that that's true. It's just somebody actually saying, and again. Or just saying a prayer of confession in your, in your mind or in your prayer and knowing that God forgives you. It's just not the same yeah. as when the priest announces the forgiveness. It is like, boom, something extraordinary has just happened. It's really wonderful. Yeah. I wonder, now this is interesting. When I was becoming Catholic, I remember early on in my journey, I had, and I've told it before in this podcast, more of my the story of my journey, so I'm not going to get into any detail and bore you. But at <laughs> one point, I, I, I was thinking, is this something that even people do? Do evangelicals even become Catholic? I'd heard of I'd heard about Francis Beckwith somewhere in the back of my mind when that happened. I remember that making a bit of a stir in the community, but I wasn't sure it was really a thing. And what I did, Mark, is I went I went to Google and I typed in evangelicals becoming Catholic, thinking that nothing would pop up, thinking that no, I'm gonna get no search yeah. results. And little did I know, I got a list of of a dozen or so books of these really serious evangelicals, some pastors, some theologians, uh, all different stripes, some missionaries, evangelists, who'd become Catholic. And it was then that I realized that this was actually a thing that people do. And I was quite <laughs> shocked to learn that. And, and of course, I ordered all those books on that list and began to devour them. And I think shortly after that, I, well, I found the church fathers and I, the ship had began to sail. Yeah. And I got to a point... Now we're up here in Canada, so I was I was cooling a pot of soup in the snow in a snowbank behind our house, ah. so I could blend it in the blender afterwards. I had to cool it down first, and I remember standing there with you know in my slippers on the back porch in the freezing cold, and it just hit me. I thought, okay, I've I've read this stuff. The, the claim of the Catholic Church seems very good historically, theologically, spiritually. My heart is there. Really, where else can I go? Right, the words of Peter kind of echo in my in my mind. The Holy Spirit brought them up, and I thought, where else can I go but become Catholic at this point? I wonder, as we close this off, 
what you would say to somebody like me who who punches into the Google machine, who knows <laughs> who knows when, you know, evangelicals becoming Catholic and encounters your story and hears about you becoming Catholic, an evangelical, uh, no slouch in that department either. <laughs> what what would you want to say to somebody who's who's found you? And is kind of on that precipice of beginning to look more deeply into the Catholic Church. What what words of advice or or warning or encouragement <laughs> would you have for them? What would you say? Well, a couple things. One would be patience. Uh, to realize probably the first inkling that I needed something more deep than my evangelicalism happened when I was a pastor, and then it was another thirty years, thirty five years before I I made the plunge. Uh, and and um, just to follow where your mind and heart are leading in the, in the sense of, you know, God is the God of truth. And he, there, there, there were truths in Anglicanism and there are truths in Orthodoxy and there are truths in the mystical way. There's truths in Pentecostalism and there's truths in evangelicalism, all that have shaped me. But I've seen a fuller expression from them in them in the Catholic church, a more mature, what I'd say a more mature and fuller, both fuller and deeper expression. So uh, follow where the Spirit leads. I mean, the Lord is very patient with us and actually, I think, deliberately leads us in different ways. I mean, I, I felt years before, the last few years when I was editor-in-chief, I felt like I really wanted to become Catholic tomorrow. But I had this distinct sense that I was to remain at Christianity Today as editor-in-chief, and I couldn't become a Catholic and keep in that position. And I felt the Lord wanted me there. So I do think the Lord uses us sometimes where we are for what for his mysterious reasons. And it wasn't until about a year ago that I felt like, okay, that uh, that sense of obligation from the Lord was released, and I could I could pursue this now. I do believe the Lord. Uh, you know, uh, I've had people say, "I suppose you want me to become Catholic." You know, friends, I suppose you want me to become Catholic, and you start badgering me to become Catholic, and I go, "I'd really love for you to become Catholic." But the first thing you've got to do is you have to just make sure you're in touch with the Lord and ask him what he wants you to do next and do that. And the Lord will bring to his church the people he wants to bring to him in his time. So I don't I feel like I want to encourage people to become Catholic because I do think it's the it is the true church in the sense it is connected to the original apostles. It has a divine charism of the, the gift of the magisterium. I can give you all sorts of rational reasons why you should do that. But in the meantime, I, I'm not going to tell people what their journey should be and how, what their, how the roads they should be to get there. So some will come through evangelicalism. Some will come through leaving the Christian faith and going through Buddhism and Hinduism and then come back. I don't know. You know, the Lord is mysterious in the way he grabs people. <laughs> I think it's, it's so simple on one hand, but it's so, it's so profound on another. I mean, God is the God of truth. If people are, are humbly seeking him and and maybe they stumble across this interview and they go yeah you know what i i need to look more into this I, I pray right it's a matter of 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 god is is there he is the god of truth i mean it, he leads people where they need to go if they're willing to be led right yeah and and to really follow those those instincts or those yearnings and not let Twitter and social media and the busyness of your life, push them aside. That's a huge mistake. Those yearnings for truth, you got to really pay attention to them. Really got to 
and figure out a way to get all this other distraction that the world throws at us to give yourself time to do that time and space. <laughs> yeah. I got to quit Twitter, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I meant that for you personally. Yeah. been dying to say that the whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this has been uh, remarkable, a fantastic conversation. I'm so grateful to you for your time. Where do you want to point listeners to to go and look at what you're doing these days, what you're writing to find out more about you? Where do you want them to, to yeah. point them? Well, my website is uh, markgalley.com. That's G-A-L-L-I.com. And I post there, I don't know, every, every other couple of weeks, a story, just articles of general interest, often about, uh, they've been about evangelicalism and such things. I also publish something called the Galley Report. It's a newsletter that's published every week, and it's links to articles that I just find interesting and I think will be helpful for people as they negotiate their lives as Christians in the 21st century. So not every article, not it, not every article is specifically religious. Most of them aren't, but I just think they help Christians think about where we are in the world today, for good, bad, and and ugly, and. Uh, and then one or two pieces are specifically Christian or theological in some way. And it's only four or five links. It's not one of those newsletters that has 15 or 20 links, which you can only, you could, you could really read the whole thing and every link I point to, <laughs> it's not going to impress you. And it's been more ecumenical in nature. I, I, I include Catholic sources, Orthodox sources, Protestant sources, whatever I think really speaks to the issue at hand that I'm trying to, that I think people ought to be listening to. So Right. Uh, so yeah, you can sign up. You can go to my website and find a place to sign up for that. Or if you Google the galley report, something will come up for you to, to sign up. It's all free. Well worth the money invested. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Mark, thank you so much for being here. I want to say God bless you. God bless your thank family. You. God bless the fantastic work you have done and are doing for the church. Uh, this has been fantastic. So Thank, oh, thank you so you. much. I'm honored that you'd ask me to come on. So many blessings to you as well. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Cordial Catholic. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Send me an email. Let me know what you thought of it. CordialCatholic at gmail.com TheCordialCatholic.com is my website for the blog, for show notes for this show and blog articles and things I've written lately. Do check that out and check out Mark's website as well. MarkGalley.com The Galley Report I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and please do like and subscribe to this podcast. Please follow it where you find it, and please leave ratings and reviews if you can, if you like this show. Your ratings and reviews help to push the podcast out to new listeners and help to grow the audience and help to expand the mission of this podcast, which is ultimately evangelization. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic to support this show or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic for a one-time donation. All those funds go right back into supporting this show and currently I'm building a studio in the basement uh, to move this stuff down there to work so this room can be a baby's room. That's exciting. So thanks for your support, guys. It does go a long way to help to keep this thing 
going and growing. Please pray for me. I'm praying for you. And I'll talk to you again next week. Please listen again then. And hey, please tell a friend. You guys are great. And thank you. Thanks for listening. It's been a wild ride and just gets more and more wild. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.